Good evening, Clifford Baptist Church. Good to see everybody here. Those of you joining us by streaming this evening, thank you so much for coming to be with us uh, for some minutes of Bible study as we open God's Word together. Uh, as we get rolling this evening, uh, I do want to say, first of all, I have a public service announcement. And we have a large group of folks who are kin to the Massey family in our church and in our community, of course. Uh, public service announcement is the large Massey family reunion will not be held this year. So if you're kin to a Massey or you have a connection with the Masseys, please pass that word on. Also, before we get started, tonight is Kenneth Campbell's birthday. Up there in the box, running sound for us. Uh, and so he tonight officially becomes the president of the Old Guys Club. And uh, Kenneth, happy birthday tonight. Thank you for being here, helping us with sound. And Chad, of course, is up there in the box with streaming. So thanks to all who make it possible for us to be online as well as here in the sanctuary. We have a great crowd here in the sanctuary tonight. So however you're joining us, we're grateful to be together in God's house as we look again once more at God's Word. Uh, if you're just joining us, we are taking a step-by-step -step view of God's Word through the entirety from Genesis through Revelation. And uh, tonight we are on Lesson 20. And so as we begin, let's start with a word of prayer. Our Father, our God, thank you for your love in our lives. Thank you that as we meet together, whether it's in our living rooms by an iPad or a computer or we're here in the sanctuary, Father, thank you that we meet together under your banner of love and blessing. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, I, for one, just take for granted that I have your Bible, in fact, have many Bibles in my office and in our home, Lord, and we thank you for your word. There are people in this world who would love to have a copy of your word, and so help us not take it for granted that we have your word, your inerrant spoken word to us, this letter of love that comes to us, Lord, that assures us of your grace and your presence and your kindness and your provision throughout your word, Father. We see it in the ups and downs of Israel. We see it, Father, in the New Testament. And tonight, we're just so thankful that we are people who are under your hand of grace and provision and love day by day. Lord, thank you that your banner over us is love. And so as we open your word tonight, Father, I pray that you will use my mouth to speak your words. And we pray, Father, that the Spirit of God will pull up beside us and be our teacher tonight. Father, thank you that as we gather here, we know that you're going to bless every person as it teaches us in the book of Revelation. Whenever we open your word, we are blessed, Lord, and we are not to change it. We're not to step to the right or to the left of the path that your word lays for us. So thank you tonight that we're here to open your word and be blessed by what you tell us in your letter of love to us. Thank you again that we meet under your grace, and thank you that we open your word together. Uh, in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, tonight is lesson 20 out of roughly, I think it's going to be about 32 lessons, so we're well past the halfway point as we come to lesson 20. And tonight is a red-letter night in our study in that we are leaving the Old Testament, and tonight we're going to open the New Testament Word. Uh, we move from old to new tonight, and here's a point that you have to understand as we are grasping the history and the flow and the meaning of God's Word and how it's put together and how it's placed together and how we can understand the, the chronological timeline. Even though the Bible is not 
laid out in a chronological line, we can understand the timeline of the Bible as we study it together. But tonight, as we study, you have to understand that uh, all of the Old Testament serves as a prophecy, serves as a pointer to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the center point. Jesus is the fulcrum around which all of the Bible revolves. So we have to understand, as you open the book of Genesis, you are beginning to understand the life of Jesus Christ. As you go through the Psalms and the Proverbs and the prophets and the history and the judges and the kings, you're understanding the life of Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament is a segue to where we come to tonight as we begin studying the life of Jesus. The lives of the Old Testament patriarchs portray him in many ways. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament points toward the final sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ. And so when we picture in our minds and read in the Gospels, Jesus dying on the cross for us, all of the Old Testament sacrificial system builds up to that point of the sacrifice of the final, perfect, sufficient Lamb of God, Jesus. So all of the Old Testament serves to bring us here tonight. The Psalms portray Jesus. The prophets predict and preach His coming. So tonight, as we open this word, I am thankful for it. In fact, tonight, we know that the last Old Testament book written was written by the prophet Malachi. Chronologically, he is in the right place because Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, the last of the minor prophets as well. And as the Old Testament closes with this final word from Malachi, uh, here's the closing statement of the Old Testament. God says, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. The last word of the Old Testament is curse, is judgment. And then when that last word of the Old Testament is spoken, God falls silent for 400 years. We hold our breath waiting for the next word to be spoken, waiting for the next act of God to come. So in that page that you have, that little white page that divides your Old Testament from your New Testament is signifying 400 years of silence from God. And if you remember the first words that God speaks to break the silence is about the coming of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of the coming of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law leads us to the dead end of sin, uh, lostness, and the curse of death. But with Bethlehem, as the New Testament opens and the gospel of Jesus Christ, its message becomes forgiveness and love and grace and salvation and removal of the curse from sinners through the life and the forgiveness of Jesus, the very Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the suffering servant, the Redeemer who comes in the flesh wrapped as a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. So as the curtain falls on the Old Testament, God's chosen people have waited 400 years, and in the span of that 400 years of silence from God, a lot happens in the world. Uh, As we know, in the passing days, as we see even in our day, a lot happens in the world in the span of just a few years. In the span of those four centuries that God was silent, the Roman Empire had conquered Israel and had conquered the civilized world. So as the New Testament opens, a whole new government is in place. 
We, we know that, uh, but in that 400 years of silence from God, that's the transition politically that has taken place. As the New Testament opens, there's a whole new government in place from the close of the Old Testament. The Roman Empire is in control of the world. Caesar Augustus is the world's ruler, and he has delegated his power to several officials who rule and reign in separate parts of the empire. So Caesar Augustus is the ruler over all of the empire, but there are also rulers in geographical sections of the Roman Empire. Uh, Herod is the ruler over Judea. So within the scope of the Old Testament, God had spoken through his prophets to tell the world so much about the coming of the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior, what he would be like, his parents, his family, exactly where he would be born in Bethlehem Ephrata, the miraculous life that he is going to live. All of it is, all of it is in the Old Testament. So the government of Jesus' day is documented very well in all of our history books. In all of the non-biblical recording of history, we see that the government in which Jesus was born was absolutely the government of the world in his day. Jesus comes to the real world. Jesus deals with real people. Jesus faces the real situations in the real world situation in which he is born. So he, he is coming to us in a, a time that history recognizes. There's nothing make-believe. There's nothing fictional about the account of Jesus' life, coming to the world, being born in Bethlehem, living in the Holy Land, his ministry largely carried out there. So as a student of the Bible, you certainly know the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four accounts of the same man, four accounts of the same life of the Son of God. But I want you to remember that these four accounts are still different from one another. God used each gospel and, and every one of the gospel writers to account for Jesus' life through his own eyes, through his own life's experience, through his own family, uh, through his own mind. So every one of the four gospels is an account of the same life of Jesus Christ, but we see it through the sieve of the mind of that gospel writer. We see it through that writer's spiritual experience with the Son of God, Jesus. So, and also something very important for you to take note of is that every gospel is written to address a different audience. Each gospel is written to address a different audience. And so it's worded to reach out to the people to whom it is directed. That's important for us to note. Also note this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. Synoptic basically means similar. They are similar gospels. Uh, you'll find much of the same material accounted for in all three of those gospels. Basically, it is believed that Mark was written first of all as a gospel. It's the shortest. It is the most concise. It uses the fewest words to describe the life of Christ. And then Matthew and Luke seem to use Mark as a template to structure their gospel as well. They're very different. Every gospel of these three have a different slant uh, of the account of the life of Christ. So they're not 
copies of one another. As I was doing this study, I, I, I wrote down they're not carbon copies of one another. You have to be kind of old to know what a carbon copy is. They're not a Xerox copy of one another. Uh, but uh, they are each one, although they have very similar materials and maybe even put together in a similar way, uh, they are not the same. They are from each man's viewpoint of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then the Gospel of John comes along, and of course, you know, we're studying that. If you're listening to us streaming tonight and you're visiting with us, I want you to join us on Sunday mornings because at 11 o'clock here at Clifford Baptist Church, there's a sermon series going through the entirety of the Gospel of John. Uh, Drop in with us this coming Sunday. You'll learn about Jesus cleansing the temple. That's one of the great passages of the Gospel of John. So drop in with us. But the Gospel of John is the last of the four Gospels written. It was written somewhere between 80 and 90 A.D., so we're getting to the very end of the first hundred years of the Christian faith and the Christian church. Uh, It is standalone. The Gospel of John is very distinct from the other three Gospels. Uh, And I want us to begin with an introduction to a a few of these Gospels tonight. And for the next couple of lessons, we're going to be looking at the Gospel view of the life of Christ. Matthew's Gospel, as it opens, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, lays out the genealogy or the family lineage of Jesus, the Son of God. It has Jesus' family listed from the beginning of the Jewish family. Now, this is very important, so don't miss Matthew's view of the lineage of Christ. It starts with Abraham. It starts with the Jewish lineage. It doesn't start from the beginning of time, but rather it starts from the headwaters of the Jewish family. It begins with Abraham. And the lineage runs its course going all the way through to Joseph, who is the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, the Son of God. So it traces Jesus' lineage to his earthly father, Joseph. But Matthew does not attribute Joseph as the biological father of Jesus. Matthew leads us to understand that Jesus is the Son of God. Joseph was his earthly father. Joseph was the one to whom God gave the responsibility to raise the son, but he was not the biological father of Jesus. The Holy Spirit of God overshadowed Mary, as you know. So Matthew introduces Mary as Jesus' birth mother, but he infers the virgin birth here in his very genealogy of the life of Christ. Now, very unusual in Matthew's lineage of Jesus is the inclusion of women. Most lineages, and if you go back to the Old Testament and see the myriad of of lineages in the Old Testament, they are predominantly uh, 99% male-oriented. So Matthew's lineage is quite unusual, and you, you might read through Matthew's beginning and you just see these names one after the other and take for granted that they're just in the lineage, but Matthew's lineage is very unusual in that it does include women. Not only that, it includes Gentile women, which makes it even more unusual and even more interesting. Take, for example, Rahab the harlot. Uh, who, who uh, hid the, the, uh, the spies uh, coming into the city. She is a part of the lineage of Jesus Christ in Matthew's gospel. A Gentile prostitute ends up in the lineage of Christ. That is quite unusual. Secondly, Ruth is also mentioned. 
in the lineage of Christ in Matthew's gospel. She, too, is a Gentile. Uh, And uh, also in verse 6, it refers to Bathsheba. She's actually not mentioned by name in Matthew's gospel, but she is referred to as the former wife of Uriah. Of course, she's the one with whom David commits adultery and Solomon is born. The first child, that the child of adulterous an affair, passes away. But Solomon eventually comes by this relationship. But Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, the former wife of Uriah, is mentioned here. It's very interesting. It's an unusual genealogy. If you're a student of God's Word, that genealogy in and of itself would be a very interesting study for you to undertake. Now, Here's something else that's very important. Matthew was born a Jew. And in his account of Jesus' life, he directs his gospel to a Jewish audience. So that's important for you and me to know about Matthew's gospel. It is directed to his own family. He's writing it to touch the heart of his own family members, the members of the Jewish family, the members of his family, the members of Jesus' family. He wrote the gospel a number of years after the cross and after the resurrection, and he wrote to convince his own family, the Jews, that their Messiah, the one that they had read about over and over in the Old Testament, as we know the Old Testament, as they read the prophecy of the Messiah coming, Matthew wants to announce to his own family that Messiah has come to us. He is here, and he wants his own family to come to Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, in the Jewish culture, ancestry is very important. So, he begins his genealogy with Abraham. He leads on to David. Why did he begin with those two men? Well, he wants to show his family that God had fulfilled a promise that God made to his family through Abraham and through David. He includes them in the genealogy largely to show his own family that God had fulfilled what he had promised to these two men in sending the Messiah, Jesus. I want you to write these references down, and you can go to them. Uh, For Abraham, here's the promise. It's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. You might even have memorized this one. I've mentioned it so many times uh, in the past, especially in our study through Genesis. But listen to these words. Here's the promise. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And here it comes, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. How would Abraham and his family bless all of the families of the earth through providing a Savior to the world which would come through that lineage? And so Matthew includes Abraham to include that promise that has been fulfilled that all the families of the earth will now be blessed because that Messiah promised to Abraham has come. Now about David, here's the reference you need to write down. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And listen to verses 12 and 13. Here's a promise about David's kingdom. It's a reference to Solomon, and you'll pick that up, but then the reference further passes Solomon. So listen to what it says. God speaking to David, And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, 
I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. So we see the prophecy of Solomon, who's going to build the temple rather than David, his father. But then the promise goes far past Solomon when he says that through this lineage, I'm going to establish my kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. It's a reference to the Messiah. And Matthew includes that reference in his lineage of Jesus. So Matthew is reminding his family, the Jews, of two huge covenants that God had made to his people. He told David, a king is going to sit on the throne forever. That's a a sign of the Messiah coming. And he tells Abraham that all the families on the earth will be blessed through the Savior. Now, as we consider Mary, the mother of Jesus, as she's presented in Matthew's gospel, it's highly likely that she is a young woman of 15, 16 years of age. Some, some theologians have gone further back than that, saying that she was 13 or so, which was at that, that time an acceptable age to get married and even have children. Kind of amazing to us, but that's, uh, that's what history tells us, a very acceptable age to bear a child. But the way the baby came about had never happened before and has never happened since. One of a kind that birth of Jesus Christ in humanity. If you want to turn in your Bible with me, go to Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. Matthew 1, 18 through 21. Here's the Word of God. I know it's very familiar to all of us, but it's always good to hear it. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Now pay a special attention to verse 22. Now all this was done. So here now Matthew's picking back up in his words. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. Stop there. The very important word that Matthew uses in his gospel is fulfill, fulfillment, completion of the gospel. It's an extremely important word in the account of Jesus' life from Matthew's point of view. He wants his Jewish family to know that they can read the Old Testament, what we understand is the Old Testament, that they could read their Bible of the day and see the presence of the Messiah in God's word. Primary scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah, uh, it's a, a virgin will bring forth a son who will be the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. So we see the Messiah 
in the Bible, that verse is certainly a culmination of that. This baby that comes now in Matthew's gospel is that awaited Messiah. Uh, The Jews had waited for hundreds of years and particularly had expectantly waited for something to happen after those 400 years of silence were broken from God when that last word of the Old Testament was laid down. So remember, for hundreds of years, God gave us snippets and bits and prophecies of information about the coming Savior through the Old Testament. And Matthew is faithful to point his own family to to Jesus, and he refers to Jesus' birth city in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5, as being Bethlehem. And of course, the Old Testament prophet reveals that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. So Matthew's gospel gives us the where of Jesus' birth, but Matthew does not give us how Jesus came to the earth. He gives us the where, but not the how. How did Jesus end up in Bethlehem? When the family lived in Nazareth, how is it that they go to Bethlehem for the birth? Matthew doesn't tell us, but Luke picks up the baton here In his gospel, and of course, we have the beautiful account, the one that we go to most readily in the Christmas season, uh, the second chapter of Luke, uh, the beautiful account of Jesus being born in Bethlehem due to the census that was instituted by Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, all the world had to be numbered so the taxing system could be accurate, and everyone had to go to their home city. So, Caesar Augustus brought this census about to bolster the tax base of the Roman Empire. Everyone had to report to their city of origin. Joseph and Mary had to report back to Bethlehem. Of course, you know, Bethlehem is called the city of David. Bethlehem was the city of Ruth. So it had a historical basis, but Joseph had to take his family back to Bethlehem to answer to that census. Well, after Luke's account of Jesus' birth... Let's go back then. We bounce back to Matthew chapter 2. So basically what you do is we have to synthesize these gospels to get the entire story as we put it together. So as we bounce back to Matthew chapter 2, we see the account of the wise men coming to see Jesus. He alone records the visit of the wise men. Interestingly, Mark's gospel, the first gospel written, has no birth narrative at all. There's, there's nothing in Mark's gospel about Jesus being born. But as we go back to Matthew, as the wise men come to Jerusalem looking for this new king in Matthew's gospel, King Herod, who is the ruler of that area, gets concerned and he gets very paranoid that a new king is going to be born. And so obviously he gets jealous of his own throne thinking that he must be in some pathway of succession that this new king was going to take his place. So Matthew tells us his plan. You probably know it well, but listen to Matthew chapter 2, verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So in order to preserve the life of his son, Jesus, what a cruel act that a ruler could kill all the two-year-olds and under in a geographical area. 
we see the same kind of cruelty in our midst with abortion still in our land this day. Babies die every single day. In fact, somewhere around 3,000 babies die every, every day. So we say, look at Herod, what a cruel man he was. And we live in the same kind of atmosphere. How sad that is. History is repeating itself. Why is that? Because we've walked away from the God who is the author of life. But we see cruelty there, but we also see cruelty where we are today. But God, in order to preserve the life of his son, tells Joseph to flee to Egypt and to wait out Herod's death. Why does Matthew include that fact? I think it's very important that you understand that. Uh, he wants the Jewish audience to see that Hosea's prophecy had been fulfilled. Write this reference down. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. And here is that verse. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. So there is an Egyptian connection from the Old Testament, and Matthew is reminding his family about Jesus being in Egypt for a time. So the impetus and the force of Matthew's gospel is his diligent effort to show the Jews who were immersed in what we understand to be the Old Testament that Jesus himself fulfilled all the prophecies of God, and here is the Messiah born among us. And then he, then he gives an account of his life. So we, we see that in Matthew's gospel. I, I love Matthew's gospel. In fact, whenever I study any of the gospels, I love that gospel. You know, each one of them is so wonderful in its own sense in the way that it handles the word of God and, and portrays Jesus the Christ. But we're getting close to closing tonight. But before we do, let's take a brief look at Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel, Luke's writing in the Bible is extremely Unique. He is the most unique writer of any books of your Bible. Do you know why? Because he is the only Gentile who has a contribution to the Word of God. He wrote two books that you will find in your Bible, Luke the Gospel and then also the book of Acts, the history book of the New Testament. Uh, there's no other writer like Luke in your Bible for two points. Number one, he was a physician. Uh, he was beloved and he was a physician. Uh, as far as I know, there's no other writer who was a physician in the Bible. And also, he is the only Gentile writer, which again is a very important point. He wrote those two books. Uh, it, it, I believe as, as you read through, uh, and I've preached through uh, the book of Acts, he is an extremely intelligent man. Uh, he he conveys the life of Christ so well. What will we do without Luke chapter 2? What will we do without the birth narrative of Jesus? Uh, what will we do with so ma without so many of the wonderful accounts of Jesus' life in the gospel of Luke? He was so intelligent. Uh, so he was a very smart Greek doctor, and he's also very detail-oriented in his gospel. So Matthew shows Jews that Jesus is their king, Luke is showing the world, the Gentile world, that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, interestingly as well, Luke also includes a genealogy of the life of Jesus. It's very different than Matthew's genealogy. Uh, if you want to locate that, uh, he includes the lineage of Jesus in Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. 
Very different from Matthew's genealogy in that Matthew moves forward in history, starts with Abraham, goes forward in history all the way to Joseph and Mary. On the other hand, uh, Luke moves backward. He starts with Joseph and moves backward, going backward in history all the way, not just to Abraham, but all the way to Adam. So he begins with the very first man created of God. Now, that is a comprehensive genealogy, believe me. Uh, Luke is also the only gospel writer who gives us a picture of Jesus after he is a a baby and before he begins his three-year ministry when he's about 30 years old. You know where that account is? Jesus is 12 years old and he is at the temple. Uh, Read that account Uh, It is Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. That's the only snippet of Jesus' life that you will find in the Gospels that's outside of him being a baby and outside of his three-year ministry on earth. So it's a very interesting uh, point. You know, one of the things that I I, I love, if you're a parent, I think you can identify with this. You know, when... uh, when they're traveling to Jerusalem and the family unit's going back and they miss Jesus and where is he and he is lost and we've got to go back. So they turn around and retrace their steps and go back to find him and they find him in the temple and he said, well, didn't you know I'm just, I'm just about my father's business? Yeah. And how true that son of God. But you know, as his father, I don't know if I'd have hugged him or whipped him. But he stayed behind, and I think we parents can understand that. So I don't mean to be offensive, Lord, but, you know, I just wonder as a father how how Joseph and Mary felt when he was lost, and they were just not knowing where in the world he would be, but they did find him as they returned back, finding him in the temple. Uh, The high point of the 12-year-old of Jesus in the temple is in verse 49, Luke 2, 49, when it says, I came to do my father's business on earth. And that that is exactly why the Lord Jesus came for us. And the culmination of doing God's business on earth was the cross and the empty grave. God himself laying down his life and rising from the grave that we might have forgiveness and the offer of life everlasting and a home in heaven. Uh, So as we look at this brief picture of especially two Gospels, we'll pick this study up again next week, and we will move on forward. Uh, And as we pick up, we're going to see Jesus as a 30-year-old beginning ministry and how from 30 to about 33 years of age, it leads him to the cross. That's going to be our uh, study for next week as we open God's Word together in lesson number 21. So I'm grateful that as we gather here tonight, we're seeing the Gospels and their absolute need to be present in the overall uh, stream of God's Word to us. And I do remind you that this, this is about the thread of God's love that connects all of the Bible together. And here we have the culmination as we see. It culminates on the cross and the, at the empty tomb. But the Bible comes to its climax, to its high point when we read about the life of Jesus Christ and the coming of the cross and the empty tomb and his providing salvation for the world. So we're in the heart of what this love letter is all about. Uh, we We see in the Old Testament the preface of the love letter. 
We see the, the beginning of the love letter and pointing us to what the love letter is really all about as you read the Old Testament. It's the preface of this good news. And then we see the culmination here uh, of Jesus coming. And then after his coming and his cross and his tomb, then we see how his love continues to play out and continues to do so today. So the thread that runs through the Bible is God's unerring, unfailing love for every one of us and the sending of his son is the ultimate expression of his love for us that we might be saved and given life. We'll meet again next week, and we will continue on. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, thank you for your holy word in our lives, Lord. Thank you for the gospels. Thank you that every one of them is different, and yet every one of them is so expressive about the life of Jesus Christ, Father. Thank you that every gospel Well, while not every gospel contains a birth narrative, every gospel contains a death narrative. Every gospel contains the resurrection narrative. Every gospel writer is a witness to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the center point. It is the hinge pin. It is the most important point of God's word, Lord, as we see God himself laying down his life, resurrected again, that all of humanity might be forgiven and might be saved. And so thank you for the privilege of studying your word, Lord. Thank you for the privilege of joining people by streaming tonight, Father. I am so honored that people make time to study your word. Thank you for those in our sanctuary tonight, Lord. Bless us, we pray. Thank you for all your gifts of life, and thank you for the greatest gift of your son, Jesus, who promises us as believers life everlasting. And it is in his name we pray together tonight. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for streaming with us tonight.